morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, you know, I, I want to say a couple of things. One, um, thanks to Ron last week for, for preaching. Um, I, uh, I was talking to Alex, I don't know, a month and a half ago, and uh, I told him, well, I'm having knee surgery, they're going to cut me up, and uh, I think I should be okay to preach that following Sunday. And he just looked at me like, don't be an idiot. Um, you're going to be on pain meds. Who knows what's going to come out of your mouth? Why don't we just find someone else uh, to, to preach for you? And so Ron stood in for me, uh, thankfully, because last week I had a knee surgery and they cut me up and the VA did a good job. I was a little nervous about that, um, but that's why I'm kind of limping around and why Ron is, was, uh, was here last week for me. And so I appreciate that. Um, also, thank you to everyone who prayed for me. Um, I'm doing well, although I'm a very uh, terrible patient, I think. And so I've been trying to walk around and do things, and uh, I'm just not, I'm not healing fat, as fast as I want. I haven't been able to run yet or ride my mountain bike yet, so um, I'm behind the curve as far as I'm concerned. Um, but anyway, open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Uh, we are uh, in Romans chapter 1, and last week Ron kind of focused on Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and kind of talking about what the gospel is. And what we're going to do today is we're going uh, to look at 16 and 17. I'm going to focus primarily on 17 and say, what are the implications of the gospel? How is the gospel the power of God for salvation? That's what we're going to look at today. So, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning and, and thank you for the fact that, that you love us and you care for us and uh, you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us, for the sins that we committed so that we would be removed from the path of your wrath, that, that, that in Christ we would not have to face condemnation. God, we, uh, we worship you because you're worthy of it. We worship you because you are the God of heaven and we're not. You are the one that created the universe. You are the one who is holy and majestic and perfect and righteous, and we're not. God, you deserve all glory and all honor and all worship. And Father, we pray that this morning we would be here to worship you. We thank you for the church that you have called us to, to sing your praises, to, to open up your scriptures and, and to see how you have revealed yourself to your people. God, we thank you so much that, that you care for us, that not only did you create us, not only did you save us, but that you involve yourself in our lives. You sanctify us. You make us more holy. You increase our faith and our love for Jesus Christ. You allow us to do good works, to glorify you and to serve you. You involve us in the work that you're doing in this world. God, we thank you that we're able to share the gospel with others, that we're able to, to take our scriptures to, to our neighborhoods, to places like Cherry Creek or, or, or our own neighbor. God, we thank you for that opportunity. We pray that we would be a church who loves you and serves you and worships you first and foremost, but that we would see the Great Commission as an incredible opportunity to bring the gospel, the complete gospel, the entire gospel, to our city. God, we thank you so much 
for that opportunity. Father, we pray that this morning as we're studying your word, that, that you would transform us that we would approach your scriptures humbly and that, that I would decrease as you increase and that ultimately we would be transformed by your word for your glory. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So Romans 1, 16 and 17. We've kind of been going through Romans pretty slow. This is the theme of the book of Romans. Okay, so uh, we saw Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, the author of this book. He kind of introduced himself. He, he gave them a prayer report. He said why he cares for them. Now he gets to the theme of the book. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Right? And for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. From here on out, the rest of the book is basically supporting this argument, that these two verses, okay? And so before we look uh, at these verses in detail, we need to really follow Paul's argument. He begins uh, with verse 16. He begins in verse 16 with the word for. For I am not ashamed. That word for connects verse 16 to verse 15, right, where Paul said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, right? So why is he eager to preach the gospel in Rome? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How is the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Is this a new idea that Paul thought up? Is, it, is this an invention that Paul came up with, that God divinely gave the Apostle Paul this idea, that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation? Absolutely not, because Paul, in these very verses, cites the Old Testament. He cites Habakkuk 2.4. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, this is, this is not a new concept. This is not a new idea. This, is, this isn't even something that Jesus came in and totally changed the expectations of God in the new covenant. This is something that the old covenant expected as well. So, that's, that's kind of the thought line of Paul's argument here. The gospel, something we need to know, the gospel is all about salvation. It's all about salvation. So I, I want to look at salvation and really what it is. Okay, oftentimes Christians will be sharing our faith or we talking about our faith and we mention the word salvation, but often the person that we're talking to don't really understand what that means. Well, what do you mean salvation? Exactly what are you talking about? And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're, we're going to focus on what salvation is. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is something that every Christian should know. Every single person who calls himself or herself a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, a worshiper of Christ, a Christian, a, or however it is you describe yourself, you should know that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If you did, if you'd never heard that until this morning, I want you to write that down in the cover of your Bible or wherever you take notes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone 
who believes. Every Christian everywhere, no matter where you are, when you live, should be able to say that phrase. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Underline it in your Bible. Write it in your notes. Make sure you know that. The gospel is all about salvation. And so I'm going to look at a couple of different points here talking about salvation. First up is that everyone needs salvation. Everyone needs it. This is the point that Paul makes from, uh, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, showing that all have sinned and fall under God's righteous condemnation. Every single individual has sinned. Every single person alive in all of history, except for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, every single person who, have, who has ever lived has sinned. We have all sinned, whether, you, whether you're a religious Jew or Roman pagan or, or, or an American. We have all sinned, okay? We're all alienated from God, who is absolutely and perfectly righteous, all right? So uh, because we have all sinned, we're unrighteous and we're under God's wrath. So Paul explains this in, in just the verse following, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is why we need to be saved. God is angry at our unrighteousness and the way we distort the truth to justify ourselves. We are so good. The non-Christians and Christians alike are so good at justifying our own sin. When we sin, what we'll do is we'll say, well, actually, my certain set of circumstances and, and my particular uh, set of circumstances in my context here means that, that what I did, although in most cases it would be sin, this instant is not sin. So I know that typically it's sinful and wrong for me to holler and scream at my wife. However, if you had heard what she was saying to me before that, you would, you would have justified me as well. It's okay for me to talk to her that way because of the way that she talked to me first. What am I supposed to do? She treats me terribly. I'm, that's not my exact case, by the way. Jen doesn't, Jen doesn't do that. Um, but that's what we do. When we sin, we say, well, my particular set of circumstances means, means that this isn't really a sin. And this is okay. In fact, this is what I should do. I should steal this from my employer because my employer underpays me. What would you expect me to do? It's not wrong that I'm doing this. I'm I'm just getting what I'm deserved. We justify our own sins. Whether this is anger or theft or whatever it might be, we justify ourselves. We're so good at this. Verse 118, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's another scripture that that explains it, uh, Romans 2.8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Here's the problem. God, God is, is wrathful toward us in our unrighteousness and in our untruthfulness. God is wrathful and angry at us in our unrighteousness. We must understand that. Our sin leads to God's wrath. Don't mix this up. Satan is not your judge. 
God is your judge. It is not Satan's wrath you're trying to avoid. It's God's wrath. This is what we need saving from in the end. The ultimate problem is God's final wrath that separates us from himself, from himself and casts us into hell. If you want to look at the scriptures uh, to find the answer, if you ask the question, what do we need to be saved from? And you go through the scriptures, you're going to find answers. You're going to find uh, that we need to be saved from guilt and disunity and bad relationships and destructive behavior and, and harmful ways and all of that stuff is in the scripture. But mainly the answer is if you look through the scriptures with the question, what do I need to be saved from? The main answer you're going to find is I need to be saved from God's wrath because of my sin. Because I am a sinner, I need to be saved from God's wrath. Our ultimate problem, our ultimate problem, to borrow from from the great Jonathan Edwards, is that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's absolutely true. The gospel is mainly the good news that God himself has rescued us from the wrath of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation from the wrath of God, the power that brings us to eternal safety and joy in the presence of God. We're not saved from Satan. We're not saved from anyone else other than God's wrath. Romans 5.9 makes this point clear. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So in verse 16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It means that the gospel is God's power to rescue believers from the wrath of God or or from the righteous judgment of God, as Romans 2 puts it. Salvation refers to being rescued from God's wrath and judgment that we deserve because of our rebellious sin. Remember, a few months ago, we, we, we... really went in depth and talked about the gospel. I think it was the first uh, sermon in the, the doctrine series, and we talked about sin. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not an oopsie-daisy. Sin is not a, a one-time little, little, you know, incident that we committed. Sin is a rebellion against God. Sin is a rebellion, a turning our backs against a, a perfect and righteous God. Sin is telling God, you are not Lord over my life. I will be Lord over my life. That's what sin is. And so, because we've involved ourselves in sin and we're slaves to sin, we face God's wrath. We face God's wrath. Salvation refers to being rescued from God's wrath. It means being delivered from the penalty of sin, which happens the moment we believe. Being delivered from the power of sin as we grow in godliness and holiness and being delivered from the presence of sin when we stand in his presence. That's what salvation is. We're saved. Salvation is that we are saved from God's wrath in spite of our own unrighteousness. John Piper Uh, By the way, John Parker argues that Paul's main focus here is the future aspect of salvation. And and he actually, he did a series through the book of Romans. And uh, he preached, I think, in that series, three sermons just on these two verses. You can find them at uh, DesiringGod.org. And he he did a great job of it. But he focuses, uh, he thinks that Paul's main focus here is the future aspect of salvation. But salvation also has many, many positive aspects, such as enjoying a reconciled relationship with God or receiving uh, all the benefits or the riches 
of Christ. We see that in Ephesians 1. But if we think, if we think that we need to sell the gospel, and this is, this is a, a problem that a lot of evangelical Christians have, we say, uh, the gospel has saved me, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and the gospel matters, and I need to share the gospel. I, I need to tell the world of the gospel. And what we do is we go out and we share half the gospel. And we sugarcoat uh, the difficult truths in the gospel, the difficult aspects of salvation concerning sin and repentance and focusing only on the positive side of it. And so we're, what we do is we say, you know, uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus loves you and he died for you and he's gracious and he'll forgive you. And he, he loves you no matter what. His love is bigger than anything you could ever imagine. And all of those things are true. God's love is greater than what you could ever comprehend. God is gracious in ways that we'll never understand. God's, God's mercy doesn't make sense. But if that's all we say, if we leave the rest out, we're only sharing half of the gospel. Because part of the gospel is Repentance. A part of the gospel is saying, look, you, you need to repent of your sins. You need, to, you need to leave the lifestyle that you're living. You need to be forgiven for the sins that you've committed. You need a Savior to reconcile you before God. Right? And, and focusing only on the, really, if, if we focus only on the positive side of it, we're literally, by definition, ashamed of the gospel. If we say, I, I like this part, and people, people will, will accept the, the good parts of the gospel, the parts about love and forgiveness and grace, but the parts that are kind of hard to swallow, the parts about repentance and the parts about how everyone's a sinner. I, I can only share this half and, and not this half. Then what that means is that you're ashamed of the gospel. And if, if we are only sharing part of the gospel, if we're only sharing part of what the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says is the power of God for salvation, we are withholding the entire gospel from the people that we claim to love. If you only give half the gospel to your family member or friends, you're not giving any of it. You're not sharing any of it. If we cut the gospel in half and only, and only share the parts that we think that sinners will accept, then we're not sharing any of the gospel. Absolutely, God is loving. Absolutely, God's grace is, is amazing. And I'm not telling you that, that those things aren't true. And share those aspects. Absolutely, when you're sharing the gospel, share God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. But don't sell it short. Don't pretend like a call for repentance isn't a part of the gospel. If all we need is a little encouragement, then Christ didn't need to die. We don't need a crucified Savior if our, if our biggest need is to polish our self-esteem and, and learn some helpful hints for happy living. We need a Savior who is crucified for our sins because we are, by nature, ungodly rebels who are under God's wrath. Every single one of us, whether or not we realize it or not, has rebelled against God and rejected Him as Lord. And for this, because of this, we need repentance. We need salvation. And most importantly, we need a Savior. And this is offensive to the natural man. But if we, if we pull our punches on this point, we miss the heart of the gospel. We, we, uh, the gospel is not only good news to the person who realizes that he needs to be saved, or he will eternally face 
God's wrath. When we share the gospel, when we discuss the gospel, we need to share the whole gospel. Not just the parts that that sinners will, will happily accept. I'm not saying that we need to stand out on a street corner with a sign saying, you're going to hell. I'm not saying we need to point our finger and tell everyone that they're condemned or anything like that. We do need to preach God's grace. We do need to preach God's love. But the gospel is the gospel. And when we, when we withhold parts of it, when we tell people God loves you, and we refuse to tell them, you need to repent. Your sins Your sins have separated you from God. We refuse to tell the unbeliever that. We're doing them no favors. We all need salvation, but salvation requires the power of God. It absolutely does. The gospel does not tell people about the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation. Did you notice that difference there? In, in the scriptures, it doesn't say that, that uh, it describes the power of God or talks about the power of God. It says it is the power of God for salvation. This means that salvation is not something that sinners can attain by their own efforts or their own good works. If that were so, Christ didn't need to die on the cross. Salvation is not a joint project where God has done his part. Now you must, uh, must kind of contribute your part. It's not synergistic, it's monergistic. A saving faith, which includes repentance, is not something that sinners can produce on their own. It's a gift of God so that no one will boast. There's scriptures, uh, Ephesians 2, Philippians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, Acts chapter 11, uh, Acts chapter 13. Those are, uh, those are just the ones that, that I could think of while I was making this note. Those all talk about that. that a saving faith comes from God. And it's crucial to see that salvation does not depend on man but on the very power of God. It requires that God impart a new life to a dead sinner. And it's something that's impossible for men to do. You know, when Jesus, in John chapter 11, uh, he's standing outside the grave and he cries out, Lazarus, come out. What you see there in that story is the power of God through Jesus Christ brought to life a dead man. And what do you think that points to? What does that point to? That points to the gospel, doesn't it? We see the power of God through Jesus Christ bring someone to life. It's not as though Lazarus was, was dead for four days saying, you know what, I decided this being dead thing isn't for me. I don't really like it that much. I'm going to go ahead and get up and walk out of this grave. I, 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 I think I'd rather do that. I think I'd rather go have a feast than be dead. That's not what he said. Right? Jesus came to him. And through the power, the power of God, through Jesus Christ, he was brought to life. That points to the gospel. It points to the gospel. Right? When the rich young ruler walked away from eternal life, Jesus, he, Jesus told the disciples, this is in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the, and the disciples were very astonished and said, Who can be saved? And Jesus replied, With people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, this verse is so often misapplied to to say, with God, all things are possible, therefore I can, you know, play really well in my basketball game or, or do whatever it is, but that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. It requires the power of God. 
The gospel is not a self-help counseling that, that a person can decide to try out. That, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not just limited to having your best life now or being happy or being financially stable or secure. That's not what the gospel is. It's the power of God imparting new life and salvation to those who were dead in their sin and under uh, God's wrath and condemnation. That's what it is. Uh, A commentator, uh, Thomas Schreiner, said, The preaching of the word does not merely make salvation possible, but affects salvation in those who are called. When we share the gospel, this is the incredible thing. When we share the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, God is using us for his work. God is using us for his ministry in this world. And the power of God, the power of God is working through us as we share the gospel. I've said before, I don't think there's, there's anything uh, more powerful happening on the earth than, than when the gospel of Jesus Christ is declared. It's incredible. It is the power of God for salvation. And when you stand back and think about it, I'm a sinner, I have fallen, I have rebelled against God. And God is using me for his work in this world. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And Romans 10 later on will, will tell us that, that, it, that we have to share the gospel. That people have to hear the gospel. God is using us, someone who doesn't deserve to be saved anyway. He's using us to bring other people to him. That's what happens when we share the gospel. That blows me away every time I think about that. I am unworthy to share the message, the power of God for salvation. Who am I? Nothing. We don't deserve it, but God is gracious. God is incredible. And it's, it's only the power of God for salvation when we share the whole gospel, when we share the whole message. So salvation requires God's power, right? Salvation also requires the righteousness of God be attributed to the guilty sinner. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In verse 17, Paul explains why the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, before we Before we go on, note that the gospel is revealed to us by God through his Son. Galatians chapter 1, Paul explains, this is uh, 1.15, Paul explains his own uh, conversion by saying, But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me. The gospel comes to us by revelation from God that focuses on his Son, Jesus Christ. Also note, Paul doesn't lead off with the love of God in the gospel. He will later on in this book, but he doesn't do that here. Instead, he leads off with the righteousness of God. Absolutely, the gospel displays God's love for sinners. We see that in Romans 5.8. But the love of God is not a stumbling block or foolishness to sinners, is it? They like that idea. Uh, 
A non-Christian loves the idea of an absolutely loving God. Right? It, they absolutely do. They'll stand back, they'll say, God is loving. But I, don't, I, I reject the idea of his righteousness or holiness. And if that's the case, if, if God is loving but not righteous, then it's easy to view him as this kind of jolly grandfather in the sky who has no expectations of us. So some, something similar to like a Santa Claus figure. Right? If, if, God is, if God is loving but not righteous or loving but not holy, then he's essentially a very powerful Santa Claus who, who's not concerned about sin or rebellion or holiness. He just wants us to be happy. If that's how we view God, that God is only love but God is not holy or God is only loving but not, but not concerned with righteousness, then he's not the God of the Bible. The righteousness of God presents a problem because we all know that we have sinned. If God is righteous and we are not, then we need a Savior. Non-Christians can, can handle the idea of a loving God who has no expectations of them. Non-Christians can't handle the idea of a holy and righteous loving God who has expectations of righteousness and holiness. Because what that means is that then we're confronted with our own sinfulness. And if there's a righteous and holy and loving God, and, I'm, and I know my heart, I know my sins, what I know is that I'm not righteous and I'm not holy. And I need a Savior. There's no other way around it. But what does Paul mean when he says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? There, there are a couple different um, things that people have said, some, some fairly valid things that, that people have said what this means. I would say that there's really a, a twofold meaning to this statement. First, I would say that God's attribute of righteousness is on display in the gospel, right? The fact that he always does what is right is revealed in the gospel. I, I don't think it's the primary meaning here, uh, but if a person has no concept of the absolute righteousness of God, then he doesn't understand his standing of being under God's wrath as an unrighteous sinner. So I really do believe uh, that God's attribute of righteousness is on display. But I think the primary meaning of the righteousness of God here is referring to the righteousness that comes from God, which he gives to those who believe. Okay? Um, so uh, when you put your faith in Christ and, you know, you hear the gospel and, and for the very first time you actually rely, on, rely upon Christ and you repent and, and you, you become a Christian, essentially, what happens is, is God gives you righteousness. All right? This is called the great exchange. Uh, we gave our sins to Christ. Our sins were put on him and he gave us our righteousness. This comes out of uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 verse 21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god it's called the great exchange we give our sins and unrighteousness to christ and he gives us his righteousness ff bruce is a theologian he argues that in the Old Testament, which kind of gives the background for Paul's thought and language here, he says in the Old Testament, righteousness is not so much a moral quality as rather a legal status. He says God himself is righteous and those men and women are righteous who are in the right in relation to God and his law. It's, it's not necessarily moral activity. It's kind of a legal status is what it is. So this meaning is 
kind of the, the first, and first thought in verse 17. And the gospel reveals how sinners may be righteous or justified before God through faith. And we know that this is the meaning um, by looking at the, uh, the parallel uh, verses in Romans chapter 3 where Paul uh, really kind of uh, goes into this thought in detail. Verses 21 to 26 of Romans chapter 3 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a long passage to read right there, but it's important. And we're going to tear that apart in a couple of months when, when we get to Romans chapter 3. But God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel and that he can grant right standing to sinners because his son met the, right, or met the righteous requirement of his perfect law when he died to pay the penalty for the sins that sinners deserve. You and I deserved that death. So sinners are not justified by their own righteousness or by the keeping of the law. They're justified by God giving the righteousness of Christ to them by faith. Again, we call that the great exchange. Paul states it plainly in Philippians 3 where he contrasts his former attempts to be righteous by keeping the law with this with this present faith in Christ. He says in Philippians 3, 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Salvation upholds God's righteousness by applying it to the sinner who believes. That, that's, that's what salvation does. And that brings us to our next point, which is that salvation is through faith. Paul mentions believing or, or faith four times just in these two verses. He says it to everyone who believes, and then he says, from faith to faith, and the righteous man shall live by faith. If salvation comes through faith plus good works, as the Catholic Church teaches, along with almost every cult in history, then it's not good news because you can never know whether you've piled enough good works to qualify for salvation. But if God declares guilty sinners to be righteous or justified the instant that they believe, what better news could there be? We need to, we need to discuss a couple of things here. First, saving faith in Christ is not a general belief that Jesus exists. Okay? The demons believe that, and they're not saved, right? A saving faith really has three elements. Uh, with our mind, uh, we must understand the content of the gospel, that there's a holy God and that man sinned and that God came and saved us through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and rose again. It, that, that's the part of the gospel, right? We need to understand that with our mind. But we also need a heart response to the truth of the gospel. When we hear that message, we hear the message of the gospel, Right? Where we agree that it is true and our agreement causes our hearts to be sorrowful over our sin. We grieve over the fact that, that 
I've sinned. Christ had to die for me. I've rebelled against God. But also rejoice in, in God's grace. And third, saving faith includes a commitment to Christ, where we trust in him and his, and his death on the cross as our only hope of eternal life, our only hope of righteousness. It leads us to follow him as Lord and worship him as God. Saving faith is not a work that we do. It's simply receiving all that God offers us in Christ. It is the hand that receives the free gift of God. That's, that's what a saving faith is. I'm going to close up just asking some questions. And if, if you got a journal, I want you to write these in your journal or wherever it is that you take notes. Uh, I, want you to, um, I want you to remember these questions and answer them to yourself. You don't have to tell me the answer to these questions. But because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we must believe it. We must believe it in order to be saved, right? So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Have you believed the gospel? Have, have you really believed it? Do you really believe that there is a God and, and that his son came and died on a cross and paid the penalty for the sins that you committed? Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel? Have you abandoned all of your self-righteousness and all of your good works as the basis for your standing before God and instead trusted only in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or are you still self-righteous? Are you still depending on your morality for salvation? You say, well, I'm a good person. I, you know, I, I stay away. I don't get drunk and, and I don't have sex outside of marriage and I, I don't support abortions and I vote Republican and I do all of these good things. Therefore, God owes me. Do you rely on your own morality and your own good works for a right standing with God? Or have you given up that idea and realized that your only hope for a right standing before God is through your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you believe this good news when you, when you fail and Satan accuses you? When you sin and every single one of us does and you're accused, you're accused by our enemy, do you believe the good news of the gospel? On the basis of your right standing before God, do you, do you daily battle against the sin in your life so, so that your attitudes and your behavior are progressively righteous? You're being sanctified. Is God's power to save you from the power of sin evident in the relationships that you have, whether it be at home or at work or in your social circles or wherever it is that you go and the relationships that you have? Is your relationship with God evident in your relationships that you have here on earth? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, we must believe it, but also we must proclaim it. And so I'm going to ask you this question as well. Are you ashamed of the gospel? And I know that we're in church, and so I know that all Christians have to say, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How could I be ashamed of the gospel? Jesus is my top priority. He's the greatest thing in my life. But do you withhold half of it when you're sharing it? Do you dodge warning people about the wrath of God because it's kind of an uncomfortable thing to talk about? 
Do you avoid telling them about the shed blood of Christ as the only remedy for sin? Even though that sounds kind of primitive. Do you put a positive spin on the gospel so that it sounds like a positive plan for how to have a happy life here and now? If so, you're ashamed of the gospel. And you yourself need to repent. If we are unwilling to share the fact that we need a Savior We need to put our faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior, the one whose body was torn apart and blood was spilled and he endured separation from God the Father that, that saved us for our sins. If you're unwilling to share that, that part of the gospel, you're ashamed. And that needs repentance. And again, I'm not saying that we need to go focus only on wrath and judgment and righteousness and ignore love and mercy and grace. We need to share both aspects of the gospel equally because that's the gospel that the scriptures present. If we minimize God's wrath and we minimize his desire for holiness and his, expect, or, uh, or his desire for righteousness and his expectation of holiness from us, then you're not sharing the gospel. You're sharing a self-help message, I suppose. Proclaim the entire gospel, not withholding the difficult truths that it contains, because your unsaved friends or family members might be offended by it. Proclaim boldly and clearly and graciously and lovingly the entire gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation. And through it, the friends and the family members that you love so dearly and that you pray for and want to see come to Christ can come to Christ through that message. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that you, um, we thank you that, that you are God, and you are holy, and you are righteous. And God, we thank you that you demonstrated your love for us by sending Christ to die for the sins that we committed. God, you are wonderful in every way. Your love blows us away, and your your graciousness is incredible to even think about. God, you are righteous and holy in ways that we can't understand. Father, we thank you that even though we rejected you as Lord and we sinned against you in rebellion, that you still saved us, that Christ still died for us, that not only, did, not only are we saved, but that you sanctify us as well. You grow us in faith. You grow us in our love for Jesus Christ. You grow us in our good works that glorify you. God, we can never thank you enough for what you've done for us but we worship you and we praise you and we love you as our creator, as our God, as our king, and as our father. And we pray these things in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.